And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is February 16th, 47th day of the year. 318 days remain till the year is over with. And it's been quite an interesting date in history. 1249, Andrew of Longmew, dispatched by Louis IX of France, as an ambassador to meet with the, the Khagan of the Mongol Empire. The uh, 1646, Battle of Torrington in Devon, last major battle, the first English Civil War. Uh, 1796, Colombo in Ceylon, now Saramaca, falls to the British, completing their invasion of Ceylon. 1804, First Barbary War, Stephen Decatur leads a raid to burn the, the pirate hell frigate USS Philadelphia. Um, 1862, General Grant captures Fort Donelson in Tennessee. Um, 1866, Spencer Compton Cavendish, Marquis of Harrington, becomes British Secretary of State for War. The uh, 1899, Iceland's first football club, Matsvi Bufelag, uh, is founded. 1900, the Southern Cross Expedition, led by Karsten Borskervink, seemed to move further south of 78 degrees, 50 uh, minutes, making the first landing at the Great Ice Barrier. 1918, the Council of Lithuania unanimously adopts the Act of Independence, declaring Lithuania an independent state. 1923, a date that uh, certainly many remember, Howard Carter unseals the burial chamber of Pharaoh Tutankhamun. 1930, the Romanian Football Federation joins FIFA. The... Uh, 1937, Wallace Carruthers gets a patent for nylon. 1940, World War II, the Altmark incident. German tanker Altmark is boarded by sailors from the British destroyer HMS Cossack. There were 299 British prisoners of war on board. They were freed. 1942, in Athens, the Greek People's Liberation Army is established. Also in 42 on this date, an attack on Aruba. First World War II German shots fired on a land-based object in the Americas. In 43, you saw the early phases of the Third Battle of Karshkov. Red Army troops re-enter the city. 1945, World War II, American forces land on Corregidor Island in the Philippines. Also in 45 on this date, the Alaska Equal Rights Amendment of 1945 was signed into law. That's the first anti-discrimination law in the United States. 1959 on this date, Fidel Castro became Premier of Cuba after overthrowing Fugencio Batista on January 1st. 1960, U.S. Navy submarine USS Triton begins Operation Sandblast, setting a sail from New London, Connecticut to begin a 
the first submerged circumnavigation of the globe. 1961, Explorer 9 is launched. 1962, the Great Sheffield Gale impacts the UK, killing nine. City of Sheffield is devastated with 150,000 homes damaged. 1962, flooding in the coastal areas of West Germany kills 315 and destroys the homes of about 60,000 people. 1968, Haleyville, Alabama. First 911 emergency telephone system goes into service. 1968, also saw the Civil Air Transport Flight 010 crash in near Shangsan Airport in Taiwan. Kills 22 of the 63 people on board and one or more person on the ground. How unlucky are you if a plane falls on you? 1978 saw the first computer bulletin board system being created. That was CBBS in Chicago. 1983, the Ash Wednesday bush, bush fires in Victoria and South Australia killed 75. On this day in 1985, Hezbollah is founded. Also in 86, the Soviet liner MS Mikhail Nemontov runs aground in the Marlboro Sounds in New Zealand. Also on this date in 86, China Airlines Flight 2265 crashes in the Pacific near Pinghu Airport in Taiwan. Kills all 13 people on board. Uh, 1991, Nicaraguan Contras leader Enrique Bermudez is assassinated in Managua. 1996, a Chicago-bound Amtrak train, the Capital Limited, collides with a MARC uh, commuter train bound for Washington, D.C. Eleven people are killed. 1998, China Airlines Flight 676 crashes onto a road in a residential area near Chiang Kai-shek International Airport in Taiwan. Kills all 196 on board and seven more people on the ground. 2000, Emory Worldwide Airlines Flight 17 crashes near Sacramento, a Mather Airport in uh, Rancho Cordova, California. Three people on board, and they were all killed. 2005, the Kyoto Protocol comes into force after it was ratified by Russia. 2006, the last Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, or MASH unit, is decommissioned by the U.S. Army. 2013, a bomb blast at a market in Hazara Town, Pakistan, kills more than 80 and injures 190. And in 2021, 5,000 people gather near the town of Kareta, Bihaji province to mark the two-year anniversary of the Harak protest movement. Demonstra demonstrations have been suspended because of the COVID-19 pandemic in Algeria. COVID affected quite a lot of um, activities in many places. Now, it's uh, interesting to note that um, just as an aside, all these three or four gigantic uh, UFOs that have been shot down recently um, does bring into question a lot of uh, things that our own government are telling us. If they were uh, 
in one particular case, the first missiles fired by a plane, and these are radar lock missiles, the target avoided the missile. So how's a balloon going to avoid a missile? Just a lot of questions. Um, the soccer team that was re rescued from the Thailand cave in 2018, uh, the captain of it just died, 17 years old. And a lot of folks are finding out that uh, they got to think before they speak. One woman, member um, of the Democratic Party, who was uh, gung-ho, defund the police, reverse his course after she got assaulted. An unarmed social worker is not going to do anything about uh, an attacker. Okay, Let's see what else we got. There have been quite a number of um, interesting stories in the move. Alrighty. Roseanne is making a comeback. A Chinese ship blinded uh, a crew with a military laser. U.S. State Department vows the U.S. is going to defend the Philippines if necessary. I would invite those that make those statements to be the first ones to go. Uh, the treatment I've received since uh, I became a disabled veteran makes me really question some of my activities in the past. You know, we've talked over the last few shows about, uh, I guess you could say strange activities on the planet, vitrified um, fortifications, uh, six foot tall uh, jars made of granite, plain of jars in the house. Well, if you want to uh, make a name for yourself and discover a lost city, according to James Randi, the famous magician and escape artist who spent considerable time probing into the ruins of Asia and South America, just visit an out-of-the-way place and ask the natives for directions to the closest lost city. Randy explained that uh, there are thousands of these structures on every continent and only a comparative handful have been recognized by archaeology. The, uh, the prehistoric stone masons were somewhat ubiquitous, left their work everywhere. Young geolo uh, geologist named uh, Carl Mosch found the lost city of Zimbabwe in southern Rhodesia in 1871 simply by Asking an ivory trader for directions. And of course, his story is filled with high adventure. 
The trader, a German-American named Adam Renders, rescued him from a tribe of hostile natives and led him to the site of the ancient ruins. Now, Monch decided Zimbabwe was actually the biblical gold center of Ophir, where the fruits of uh, King Solomon's mines were collected. But all he and Renders found were a series of granite structures on top of a steep hill filled with winding passageways and unexplored tunnels. The largest of the structures was the elliptical building, about 830 feet in circumference and 33 feet high. Close by were two towers. A cave on a cliff some distance away is proven to have unusual acoustics. Somebody speaks in the cave, the voice can be heard in the elliptical building, but nowhere else. The, uh, the theory is the native priest put this phenomenon to nefarious use. Uh, Earl Sprague de Camp, a uh, science fiction writer who has switched over to writing uh, nonfiction, uh, has written uh, at some length on it. Archaeologists have been arguing about Zimbabwe for over a hundred years. The ruins have been dated variously from 700 A.D. to 1500. They've been credited to everybody from the Phoenicians and the Egyptians to the, the naked, naked Bantu tribesmen. Now, the workmanship is rather crude when compared with the far more impressive structures of Asia and the Pacific and South America. Nevertheless, somebody went to the trouble of dragging thousands of granite bricks to the top of a hill deep in the African jungle 1,200 years ago and building an elaborate fortress temple filled with labyrinths and passageways whose only apparent purpose is to drive archaeologists nuts. And with many that I've known, that wouldn't be a very difficult thing to do. The city of Timbuktu was little more than a legend until the closing years of the 19th century. French adventurers crossed 2,000 miles of the Sahara wasteland and found it on the banks of the Niger River, what's now the country of Mali. It settled in 1087. It was once a large, thriving trade center. Today it's got a population of about 8,500. The architecture of Timbuktu is not particularly impressive, and the city's most noted for the hundreds of storks that reside there. Now, since a prominent city like Timbuktu could become lost in modern times, it's not surprising even larger and more impressive cities such as Angkor Wat would get lost altogether. Angkor was a, only a myth until explorers stumbled on it in Cambodia in 1857. It contains enormous temples and pyramid-like structures apparently related to the mysterious structures of the Pacific Islands. The walls are covered with statues and... Uh, Nice reliefs, and the origin of the city is lost in a welter of half-remembered legends. Local natives still talk about the great godlike beings who built the place. Hard facts, though, are few and far between. One story, popular soon after the discovery, is that the city was uh, abandoned suddenly, probably around 1300, in the same way, the Easter Islanders threw down their tools and their quarries and ran. At least it's obvious that Angkor was the product of an advanced civilization of engineers and stonemasons and their culture vanished rather suddenly. That does raise uh, 
a lot of questions. History demonstrates that men have often built impossibly uh, imposing elaborate cities, flourished in them for hundreds or even thousands of years, and then deserted them to live in grass huts on the perimeters. Wars and natural calamities often played a part in this pattern, of course. Great cultures have risen and then died out for no apparent reason. Men return to simpler ways of life. It seems to be a natural order of things. A thousand years from now, people may be living in thatched huts in New Jersey and on Long Island with them full view of the decaying towers of Manhattan. And they're going to tell their children about the peculiar ancients who built the towers as part of the strange religion which worshipped the, the great god money. The Middle East, a little country of Jordan, is filled with Roman ruins predating the Christian era. A large Roman theater with a seating capacity of 4,000 can be found near Amman. There are great temples and triumphal arches and countless stone columns lining uh, dead streets paved with large stone blocks. Far to the south of Amman, in the, the midst of the unfriendly desert, uh, you can enter a narrow gorge which leads through the cliffs to an ancient city right out of the Arabian Nights. This is the city of Petra, carved out of the red sandstone cliffs and filled with stately columns and temples. This Arab Shangri-La was constructed about 700 B.C., and it must have housed thousands of people. Food and water and supplies had they brought in through the gorge, the only approach uh, to the city, and it had to come from miles away. Thousands of men must have labored for generations, hacking these monuments out of the walls of this hidden valley. And some of the ruins are actually pre-Roman. Your ancient tombs and a narrow stone staircase leading to an area on top of a cliff where two 20-foot obelisks are located on the high place, a platform measuring 45 by 20 feet. Maybe Professor Agrist would regard it as another launching platform for nuclear rockets. The culture that built Petra is lost in legend and archaeological confusion. But in the city's final days, it was used as a hideout by desert bandits. For the most part, believers in Mu and Atlantis and flying saucers have ignored the ruins of the Middle East and Africa, concentrating instead on the lost cities of Central and South America. Fairly recent Mayan and Incan and Aztec civilizations uh, cannot account for all these ruins. There's evidence that another, possibly far more advanced, culture thrived in the Americas in earlier times. Remnants of that civilization may have been handed down to the Indians who followed them. Tiwanaku, a fabulous stone ruin high in the Andes Mountains, has inspired more curiosity, speculation, and nonsense than almost any other. It's been the subject of countless books and articles and been used to support the beliefs in nearly every outlandish, outlandish cult you can imagine. In recent years, there have been innumerable flying saucer sightings and the appearance of little glowing green men around Lake Titicaca, which is 12,644 feet above sea level. And the city of Tionanco is at the southeast end of the lake. And although the ruins cover only about a sixth of a mile, they feature impressive uh, man-made mounds, a 50-foot-high pyramid, and a 
number of stone platforms and underground chambers. Famous Gateway of the Sun uh, is an arch weighing nearly 10 tons. Archaeologists believe that the Tiananmen's were part of an empire that preceded the Incas by over 2,000 years. But they left no written record and there are no local legends about them. That's how old they are. When the Incas later conquered the Lake Titicaca region, they found Tiananmen abandoned. And nobody could tell them anything about it or who built it. And while many of the structures in Petra were carved from sandstone cliffs in place, some of the walls in Tiananmen were whittled out of huge blocks weighing as much as 60 tons and then somehow moved into the place where the makers wanted them. Giant statues also stand around the site. One weighing 20 tons has been moved into a museum in La Paz. In a book entitled The Great Idol of Tiananmen, Hans Bellomin, P. Allen offered an interpretation of the symbols found on a huge statue discovered in a Tiananmen temple. They claimed the symbols, symbols recorded astronomical knowledge of a very advanced order. And then you have Eric von Donneken, author of Chariots of the Gods, visited the Andes in his search for evidence that spaceships visited the Earth in prehistoric times. He described seeing a 20,000-ton stone block near the ruins of the Incan fort of Suxixaman. Von Donneken explains it's a single stone block the size of a four-story house, been impeccably dressed in the most craftsmanlike way. It has steps and ramps and adorned with spirals and holes. This whole block stands on its head. So the steps run downward from the roof. The holes point in different directions like the indentations of a grenade. Strange depressions, shaped rather like chairs, seem to hang floating in space. He asks who can imagine that human hands and human endeavor excavated, transported, and dressed that block. And what power would have been sufficient to overturn it? What titanic forces were at work here? And what was the purpose? Well, the fortress of Sus... Uh, it's actually Human. It's surrounded by a wall, 60 feet high, containing stones weighing as much as 200 tons. Morse K. Jessup, a, a UFO investigator, viewed the fortress and described these stones. He said all of them, crudely, uh, rough quarried and within ground into their designated niches in the structure by pushing them back and forth in situ till they fit so closely and completely and accurately a knife blade can't be uh, inserted between them. It's a logical and practical shortcut to effective stone fitting, which we haven't equaled in modern engineering. Then you have science writer Joseph Gudevich. He questioned uh, Jessup's theory and Flying Saucers, UFO Reports number 4. According to him, these stones had to be lifted into the air, placed roughly under their proper positions, and then by some force inconceivable to us, shoved back and forth, grinding down the rough hewn surfaces until they fit smoothly and perfectly into their proper places. To lift and swing into position and rub these massive weights back and forth without losing, uh, loosening its snugly fit. I'd add to the mystery... Some of the larger stones found in the Andes ruins were quarried in a valley 200 miles away. And somehow these enormous blocks of stone had to be transported up and down mountains to their final resting place. 
these uh, fond archaeological inventions, wooden rollers and rafts, couldn't have been used. So how did the ancient builders accomplish their task? One possible explanation taken seriously by some scientists and, of course, berated by others, is that these monuments were built in a time when the surface of the earth was actually different from what it is now. A time when the Andes was level with the rest of the land. Hanshendra Bellamy prowled around Lake Titicaca and claimed he found traces of marine sediment indicating the great uh, flood had once engulfed the area. This, of course, was evidence that the ruins had been built before the deluge and were many thousands of years old. Two Frenchmen, Louis Powell's editor of the magazine uh, Planete, and Jacques Bergier, a nuclear physicist, seemed to going on with Bellamy and in their book, The Morning of the Musicians, which I read with great interest. They proposed the earth was once inhabited by a giant race that built the mounds and monoliths and maintained a worldwide civilization with key centers in the Andes, New Guinea, Mexico, Abyssinia, and Tibet. He said, they said these were the true Atlanteans and they were destroyed by some great cosmic disaster. The evidence reviewed so far does indicate that this planet was once occupied by a single great culture or, or a series of intertwining cultures that possessed secrets of uh, engineering and stone building beyond anything known by the ancient uh, Minoans, Romans, and Britons. They built their monuments in isolated places such as the islands of northern Scotland and the Pacific and the Andes Mountains, demonstrating an incredible sense of purpose as well as Awesome perseverance. Anthropologists and archaeologists have been struggling uh, to uncover and understand the history of the past 4,000 years. And they've steadfastly refused to consider the possibility mankind may only be the latest race to infest the earth. That other races and other civilizations may have thrived here and died here. One of the increasingly uh, popular themes in science fiction is the notion that earlier super race built spaceships and sent their members off to visit the stars. And now those space travelers are coming home to in their flying saucers and looking around in confusion saying, where'd everybody go? And who are these folks that are shooting at each other? Alfred Wegener was an obscure German meteorologist. Died in nineteen thirty after suffering fifteen years of ridicule, slander, and contempt at the hands of his peers and colleagues. He was branded a kook because he believed the earth once contained two large land masses which gradually split up and drifted apart to form the six continents. Every schoolboy who's ever studied a map of the globe has reached the same tentative conclusion, for the great land masses do seem to conform like the pieces of a massive jigsaw puzzle. Wigner's evidence was a bit more complicated than that, though. He considered fossils from the different continents, climate changes, and specific geological formations, such as mountains that seem to display marked similarities on the different continents. But science just wasn't ready to consider the theory of continental drift in 1915. It was much easier to denounce Wegener and dissect his ideas with more popular theories and consign his books to the scrap heap. 
When he died in 1930, his theory seemed to die with him. In the late 1950s, the Wigner controversy had long forgotten. A new crop of scientists began to explore the, the oceans, and new data was fed into computers. Mountain ranges were discovered under the oceans, laid out in ways that confirmed Wegener's earlier speculations. And almost overnight, the continental drift theory became a new scientific fact. National Science Foundation uh, committed a large sum of uh, several millions for new tests and studies. Alfred Wegener, if he's looking down or up, may soon have the last laugh. You know, rock layers at specific levels in South America have been found to match identical layers in Africa, indicating both land masses were once part of a single unit. Current guess is that 150 to 200 million years ago, there were two supercontinents, and they broke apart and drifted away from each other slowly, and they're still moving slowly almost imperceptibly, and their movements have been measured by satellite photos and other means. North America is moving away from Europe at a rate of about an inch a year. New instruments are able to measure the magnetic fields of rocks hitting on the ocean's bottom, and uh, these measurements indicate that the Earth's magnetic field has frequently shifted, North Pole becoming the South Pole and vice versa. And such magnetic shifts have occurred at least 171 times in the past 76 million years for the proof the Earth's crust is moving about. What all this means is that about 200 million years ago, during the age of the great reptiles, the Paleozoic era, this was an entirely different planet. Perhaps it harbored life forms now unimaginable to us. Then it broke up and new continents were formed and new climactic changes occurred and the physical environment itself may have changed. And these changes could have brought about the sudden or gradual change of the life forms as they altered or adapted to the new conditions. And some of the puzzling erratics we've talked about in previous shows could have been produced by a form of intelligent life now lost and forgotten. But a lot of other changes can occur in 200 million years. It's doubtful if even the most advanced civilization could produce any quantity of monuments and artifacts that could have withstood millions of years of erosion and geological changes. The Atlantiophiles are not too happy with the continental drift theory because it virtually excludes the possibility any large landmass could have existed between North America and Europe. It may not rule out Mu or Remuria, though. Other stubborn cultists are already leaping onto the continental drift bandwagon and claiming uh, one of those two land masses as their favorite lost continent. Our flimsy knowledge of the very ancient past is based entirely on the discovery and interpretation of fossils found in the various rock layers of the Earth's crust. And this very inexact science is called paleontology, and it's only 200 years old. We haven't dug deeply enough or studied things thoroughly enough to reach reliable conclusions about the distant past. So many of the facts commonly accepted today are only educated guesses. Now, if the Earth had suffered truly cataclysmic changes in the past 200 million years, we first 
have to know and understand these changes completely before we can accurately assess the meanings of rock formations. Seems unlikely we'll ever be able to develop methods for collecting evidence that will give us conclusive truths about the Earth's past. Astronomers and meteorologists were astounded and upset by the rocks our astronauts scooped up off the surface of the moon because they indicated the moon was 4 billion years old or even older and maybe even older than the Earth itself. Some astronomers have been pushing the theory that the moon was really just a hunk of the Earth that had been uh, scooped out of the Pacific Ocean and tossed into space somehow. And that theory and a number of others went down the drain when our first space module dropped onto the Sea of Tranquility. Geologists and paleontologists have developed uh, reasonable evidence and the Earth has passed through several glacial periods or ice ages. These seem to be cyclic with uh, minor ice ages occurring about every 12,000 years or so and with major glacial periods taking place over longer periods. These ice ages uh, suggest a really major catastrophe or a sudden shift in the Earth's entire axis. Now, if you lived on the planet Uranus, seventh planet from the sun, you would be exposed to a pseudo-ice age about every 21.5 Earth years. And our knowledge of that planet is admittedly flimsy. And when and if we ever manage to visit it, we may find that many of our currently accepted facts about that planet are in error, just as our moon landings disproved many of the previously accepted facts about our own satellite. In any case, the best astronomical information indicates Uranus has a very wobbly axis and it flips over about four times for each of its uh, circuits around the sun. A, a Uranian year is actually 84 Earth years. Residents living on the fixed point on Uranus would uh, find themselves shifting drastically away from or toward the sun every 21.5 years. And if the planet were close to the sun, these shifts would produce dramatic changes in climate. So is it possible that the Earth's orbital mechanics include similar fluctuations of the axis over longer periods? Scientists have figured out that there are minor climatic changes on the Earth about every 170 years due to minor axis uh, shifts. Magnetic polarity of our planet is quite uh, unstable. Magnetic south pole is not a fixed point, but moves steadily in a 200-mile circle. And as already uh, noted, the poles reverse themselves every few million years. Studies of the rock levels of the last ice age have produced evidence that major shifts in the Earth's crust or the planet's entire axis occur about every 12,000 years or so. And these shifts would uh, change the climate completely. Frigid areas would suddenly be in the tropics. Water would uh, inundate land masses. And of course, all life would be affected. Seashells and fossils have been found in the heart of the Sahara Desert, indicating it was once covered with water. Now, in an article in the Saturday Evening Post, January 16, 1960, Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson documented the amazing results of one of these planetary inversions. Prehistoric mammoths found preserved in the frozen muck of Siberia had mouthfuls of unswallowed plants, as though they'd been quick-frozen while munching happily on their feeding grounds. He pointed out that the only way these animals could have been so splendidly preserved was to have been exposed to an incredible drop in temperature. 
Now, this could have occurred in several ways. Uh, the Earth's crust could have shifted very suddenly, carrying the animals further north very rapidly. The entire axis could have rocked over, or some cloud of frigid gases from space could have suddenly engulfed the planet. Whatever may have been the case, the discovery of these animal carcasses is solid evidence that some unexplained calamity took place with fierce suddenness thousands of years ago. You know, decades earlier, a mining engineer from Austria named Hans Horbiger developed a fanciful theory to explain the Earth's early history. He envisioned huge spears of ice crashing into the planet and talked about captive moons which predate our present moon entering uh, retrograde orbits, their gravity tearing up our seas and reshaping the Earth's surface. He wrote an 800-page book called Glacial Cosmo, uh, basically uh, Glacial Cosmology, published in 1913, and it enraged the astronomers and scientists of Germany and Austria. The way uh, Willie Lay, the German rocket authority and science writer, summed it up when he said to pick flaws in the in his theory is about as easy and as pleasant as gathering Japanese beetles from an infested flower bed. But Horbiger had a powerful ally. Another Austrian by the name of Adolf Hitler. In 1925, Horbiger delivered this ultimatum to the scientific world. Time has come for you to choose, he said, whether to be with us or against us. While Hitler's cleaning up politics, Hans Horbiger will sweep out of the way the bogus science. The doctrine of eternal ice will be the sign of the regeneration of the German people. Beware. Come over to our side before it's too late. Well, powerful backers did appear. And Horbiger set up offices and recruiting campaigns for his doctrine of eternal ice. His scientific critics were soon subjected to horrifying harassment and cringed in terrors. His organization took on all the dimensions and power of a political party. Every good Nazi had to declare, I swear I believe in the doctrine of eternal ice. Well, as you might guess, with the disintegration of Nazi Germany, his organization also seemed to melt away. However, his concepts were resurrected by Pauls and Berchier in The Morning of the Magicians. They said very clearly there have been four geological epochs because there have been four moons. Earlier epochs were influenced by gravitational changes and factors that produced giant animals and plants. In a world pop, uh, peopled by monsters, by monsters, there were uh, appeared this first man of immense size bearing almost no resemblance to us and possessed of a different kind of intelligence. Cosmic rays became stronger in those days and produced a vulgar mutation. Mutation. Survivors of this race of giants overlapped into the modern epoch and are mentioned in the folklore of many races, usually being described as evil and violent characters. One of Harbinger's disciples was, of course, Hans Bellamy, who sifted myth and legend to find further proof of the doctrine of eternal life. And it's not unusual for the eternal life believers to... Um, turned to the Atlantis literature and found in it some of the evidence they were looking for. The Atlanta files have also uh, scoured folklore and uncovered innumerable references to earlier global disasters. Although scientists sneer at the use of myth as evidence, it's obvious that all the isolated races of mankind 
manage to preserve the same kind of stories? With all the bits and pieces assembled from these ancient tales, the most common is the universal account of a great flood that occurred simultaneously over the entire planet. If these legends are dated correctly, and many Indian tribes in the Americas have myths about arcs and Noah-like personalities who survived the flood. If we take these things at their face value, we can assume that the earth did experience a phenomenal rising of the waters in fairly recent times, that a large part of the land surfaces were inundated and some human beings escaped because they had been warned in advance and had fled to high places or had built ships that were sufficiently seaworthy to withstand the torrents. Well, the flood legends form the cornerstone of the Atlantis myth. A colorful politician who had been elected to Congress but uh, decided to do what most uh, Congress people do, which is go off on their own tangent. His name was Ignatius Donnelly. He was responsible for the revival of interest in Atlantis in the late 19th century. When he was supposed to be in Congress, he was actually in the Library of Congress, collected hundreds of fragments of archaeological erratics, wrote a number of best-selling books. He was a U.S. congressman, a state senator, and even ran as vice president on the populist ticket in 1901. His book, Atlantis, The Antediluvian World, still in print and does make some sense, even though it fails to prove the existence of Atlantis. It does prove that other civilizations existed before the present epoch. He also advocated a theory claiming that a visiting comet had upset the balance of the Earth in earlier times and produced catastrophic results. Harbinger carried that theory several steps further. Comets have always served as a kind of scientific catch-all, although we actually know very little about these celestial objects. In fact, we've never managed to catch one. Astronomers like to believe these fireballs are made of ice and that the Huge hunks of ice that have crashed out of the sky for centuries really come from the tales of comets. Recent years, many prominent scientists have uh, seriously explained flying saucers being the debris from comets' tails. During the UFO flap of 1966, the late Senator Ralph F. Kennedy sent out form letters stating one explanation of this phenomena connects the lights that are seen with the gaseous tails of comets. Now, if a comet ever did strike the Earth, it might make life here rather uncomfortable. Scientists have estimated that if a solid meteorite only a mile in diameter should strike the planet intact, the impact concussion could destroy a large part or all of life here. There are a number of large meteor craters, all very ancient, that prove that such collisions do and have taken place. Ancient civilizations could have been destroyed by any one of these potential catastrophes, as well as such things as enormous earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. I mean, our planet is really unstable. Mountains are always blowing up. The crust is constantly shifting and generating earthquakes, which take a frightening toll in lives and property every year. Rivers overflow. Floods occur with appalling regularity. Enigmatic fireballs can sweep down out of the sky suddenly and unexpectedly and burn up whole cities like happened to Chicago. It may surprise many to learn it was not Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over her lantern. On top of these hazards, we got the most dangerous factor of all, 
man himself. He's made war an economic and political necessity. The ruins of the Middle East and Europe stand as testimony to his ability to destroy whole civilizations by himself without any outside help. Now, among the traditions of the Hopi Indians is the story of Kuskurza, the third world epic, which lay in the east. Maybe it was Atlantis. They developed flying machines called Petavotas, according to Frank Waters in his book of the Hopi. Some of them made uh, Petavolta, and with their creative power, made it fly through the air. You know, in this airship, many of the people flew to a big city, attacked it, and returned so fast nobody knew where they came from. And soon the people of many cities and countries were making these craft and flying them to attack one another. So corruption and war came to the third world as it had to the others. With pleasant-day inflation, theories of the cheapest commodity around, costing less than a dime of gross, it's better to stick with the available facts. The facts are that one or more civilizations preceded early man and left behind magnificent megaliths as proof of their artistic engineering abilities. And something destroyed these civilizations, or maybe they destroyed themselves, Great civilizations have risen and died within the past 2,000 years alone. Your own civilization may be following the same unhappy route, and 2,000 years from now, the earth may again flip on its axis. Great sheets of ice may bury the rubble of our cities. Silt and stones will wash over our towers and fortresses. And somewhere, a handful of beings, reduced to savagery by necessity, will tell tales around the campfire about us and how we even... uh, Dare to reach for the moon. Thousands of years after that, a new breed of anthropologists will collect these tales and scoff, even though all the tribes from all the parts of the planet will tell the same tales. It's plainly impossible, the scientists will say, that any super civilization could have existed in prehistoric times. And primitive man could hardly have flown to the moon. Uh, They'll say it's folly to even consider such nonsense. It's far more fruitful to measure and study those giant faces carved into Mount Rushmore. Faces are obviously replicas of replicas of ancient gods. Probably they were carved by the same primitives who erected that great ring of stones in the British Isles. Mankind is, you know, kind of like a broken record, repeating the same refrain over and over again. And as I've said many times, those that don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Well, in 1950, a new meteor arced across the horizon, spewing a wrong tale of crisp ideas that left the scientific establishment sputtering in rage. And this meteor was a book dealing with history and astronomy and archaeology, written by a psychiatrist and published by a major Madison Avenue uh, publishing house. Science editors and book reviewers across the country greeted it with awe, comparing its author with Galileo and Newton and Darwin and Alfred E. Newman and Einstein. Public responded by making the book a bestseller. It's called Worlds in Collision by Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky. He tore at the delicate underpinnings of 
modern science, applying excessive scholarship to the problems of how the planets were formed and what forces may have wrought changes in the Earth. And along the way, he was obliged to invent a new theory based on the, the flimsy evidence of mythology. He dared to throw out some of science's most coveted concepts, substituting his own cosmology. Now, the explosion followed almost immediately. The biggest names in astronomy and physics, organized and fulminated, sent out to destroy this upstart by flooding his publisher's office with vicious letters threatening to boycott the firm unless Velikovsky's book was withdrawn. Now, since the publisher also had a profitable sideline of textbooks and was heavily dependent on the academic community for support, this campaign had some effect. An assistant editor who first suggested publishing the book was fired and publication rights were turned over to another publisher who didn't have a textbook business to protect. Leading scientists gave public lectures denouncing Velikovsky. Scientific journals were filled with critical anti-Velikovsky letters and articles. and It was modern science. This is the darkest hour. It was a response which for intensity and hostility was unequaled in 20th century scientific history, according to the Los Angeles Times. And what triggered the emotional outburst? Well, Velikovsky's main theme was that the planet Venus is really a comet hurled out of the planet Jupiter. It brushed past the Earth on its way to its orbit and around the sun and been observed by all the existing races and recorded in their mythology. Now, Emanuel Velikovsky was Russian, born June 10, 1985, studied medicine and law at some of the Europe's best universities. He couldn't go to a Russian college because he was of the Jewish faith. Received his medical degree in 1921 and settled in Palestine in 1924. He uh, actually knew uh, Freud personally and corresponded with the great man in the last years of his life. 1939, Velikovsky and his family moved to New York, intending to stay only eight months, but uh, he was already working on his theories at that point in time. And he spent the next nine years in libraries conducting the, the exhaustive research that finally resulted in the book Worlds in Collision. Today he lives uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, rarely appearing in public. He'd been more fortunate than Wegener in his continental drift theory and that uh, Velikovsky has lived to see his critics silenced and many of his seemingly far-out concepts confirmed. Ever since the invention of the printing press, publishers have been flourishing on bestseller books covering the whole spectrum of pseudoscience. Mayas of profound nonsense, such as the works on pilimidology and Atlantis, have sold in amazing numbers uh, generation after generation. Nearly every major publisher has books on astrology and flying saucers on the backlist. Large part of the endless stream of these of theses and papers and learned studies by establishment scientists have in time proven invalid and more crackpot than even the, the cultist literature. So it was incredible that Velikovsky's contemporaries singled out his work, a book that had taken nine years of careful study and research to produce in order to attack it in, in the way that they did. In retrospect, many of the anti-Velikovsky critiques read like the work of deranged lunatics who hadn't even bothered to read the book they were attempting to criticize. 
They were against the book simply because it propounded ideas that were contrary to the accepted theories of the day. They resented the fact that a psychiatrist dared to speculate on astronomy and archaeology. He was an outsider, an intruder. Above all, they resented the fact his book was well written, far better than many of the the scientific uh, theses that were uh, being generated by mainstream scientists. Velikovsky said in the early 50s, if I hadn't been psychoanalytically trained, I'd have had some harsh words to say to my critics. Orthodox scientists have always sneered at the works of Charles Ford, an American humorist who published four books of oddities and scientific anomalies, primarily because he delighted in attacking the scientific establishment. Now they tried to lump Velikovsky together with Charles Ford, scientists and untutored followers of, sci- of uh, scientism spent years denigrating Velikovsky and generating a legend who was just another crackpot. Aging psychiatrists ignored him and went to writing books. Expanding his central thesis. In a rare attempt at self-defense, he stated he hoped that future generations of scientists would understand his work more clearly. And he wrote off his contemporary critics, and this prompted uh, Martin Gardner to observe in 1952 that uh, Dr. Velikovsky is an almost perfect textbook example of the pseudoscientist, self-taught in the subjects by which he does most of his speculation. Working in total isolation from fellow scientists, motivated by a strong compulsion to defend dogmas held for other than scientific reasons, and with an unshakable conviction in the revolutionary value of his work and the blindness of his critics. One of the favorite points of the anti-Velikovsky critics was that he relied on ancient myths and traditions for his evidence. Actually, in Worlds in Collision, he devoted many pages on, to this problem. Since he was trying to reassemble events that transpired in prehistoric times, he was obliged to perform a comparative study of early legends. And, of course, he recognized the problem of interpreting this material correctly, and it was a monumental problem, no question about it. Well, traditions about upheavals and catastrophes found among all peoples are generally discredited because of the short-sighted belief that no forces could have shaped the world in the past that are not at work today. A belief that it is the very foundation of modern geology and the theory of evolution. Now, these were fighting words to the scientific establishment. Velikovsky compounded this felony by suggesting that numerous events and catastrophes long considered uh, in religion as miracles and acts of gods were in reality observations of astronomical phenomena that could be explained. This was totally unpalatable to the scientific community and to a number of others as well. In 1950, the American Journal of Science actually ranted that Velikovsky's book was best described as burlesque of both science and history. Seventeen years later, Yale Scientific Magazine devoted an entire issue to vindicating the good doctor. What he had put forth in his book turned out to be primarily true. So what happened in those 17 years? For one thing, the, the old guard had changed to a degree and many bright young men had emerged clutching their slide rules as they rode the tails of new man-made comets to Venus and Mars. And for another, the stupefying and stultifying atmosphere of the McCarthy era of the early 1950s had ended 
Professor Motz of Columbia University sent this title change and said in a letter to Harper's in October 63, that I don't support Velikovsky's theory, but I, su- I do support his right to present his ideas and to have these ideas considered by responsible scholars and scientists as the creation of a serious and dedicated investigator and not the concoctions of a charlatan seeking notoriety. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We've run out of time. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about worlds in collision and other interesting topics. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.